And you had Nikki Eyes. What's up, guy? And Mikey Franchese. I saw that guy. Yeah, I want to see him. Michael Franzese was not just a soldier, but a capo in the notorious Colombo crime family. He spent the better part of a decade in federal prison on charges including tax fraud, racketeering, and parole violation. I grew up in New York where there are five organized crime families. My dad, Sonny Francese, was the underboss of the Colombo family back in the 1960s. I went to see my dad in uh, Leavenworth in the visiting room, and I said, Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. And uh, he said, OK, son, but if you're going to be on the street, then I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. He said, go home, somebody be in touch with you, do whatever you're told. That's how it started for me. He was a made member of organized crime. His main forte was making money for the mob. In a very short period of time, he made over $1 billion for the Colombo organized crime family. Yeah, by far the most lucrative business I got involved in was the wholesale gasoline business. And in a nutshell, we devised a way to uh, collect the taxes, not pay the government the taxes. And um, I was there to be in business, and to make money, real money. Making the most money for the mob since Al Capone, Michael was the youngest person listed on Fortune Magazine's 50 Most Wealthy and Powerful Mob Bosses. Now, as one of the only guys from that list still alive, Michael has transitioned from powerful mob boss to now speaking in front of thousands of people each week. A lot has changed these past 20 years, but it's safe to say that Michael Franzese is a man on a mission. Morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And yes, this is the third and final service, and I really appreciate all of you that have come by this morning. It's been a great weekend. Uh, I want to thank the staff and pastor for just treating me so well. This is my third trip back here, <clears throat> excuse me, over the past 12 years, and it's very satisfying for me to see the growth in the church. <clears throat> excuse me, and I knew it would happen because Pastor Scott is just a great guy. He's got a great heart. He really knows the word, and this is a good place to be. If you're visiting, I hope you come back. Don't make this be the last time, only the first. But um, i got to give you a little insight into Pastor Scott. And before I do that, let me say this. I've been all over the world. I've heard every worship band that you can imagine. I mean that. And I want to tell you, these people rock. They are great. They really are. I mean that. And uh, the only complaint I have is they've been feeding me too much in the last three days. But uh, it's okay. I take a break. But uh, last week, I had to go into Canada. Now, I don't go into Canada like any normal person goes to Canada. Because of my past record, I have to get a temporary uh, you know, visa, and it's a whole process. I gotta hire a lawyer, it takes time, it's a whole deal. But for the past 25 years, I've been there several times, never got denied. Last week, wasn't the most pleasant crew around at the border in Vancouver. Long story short, I'm there six hours, they denied my entry. It was kind of sad because I was visiting a big church in Calgary. There's a couple of thousand people there, and I felt really bad for the congregation and the pastor. But my attorney, God has a way of fixing things. My attorney uh, just happens to be here in Michigan. 
So she says to me, come here. We're going to take it to the border here in Michigan. I think I can get it approved for next week because I'm going back to Vancouver, another big church. So we go there, and I say, the night before, I said, Pastor, you think you can get somebody? I'll pay them. They can drive me to the border so, you know, uh, I can get there in the morning. Oh, no problem. I'll take you. I said, well, Pastor, I don't want you to go out of here. No, 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 I'll take you. He insisted. Picks me up at the hotel. We get there at 9 o'clock. We go through the tunnel, and it starts, you know. Uh, we get in. After we get into the tunnel, we get into the parking area, and immediately eight p- people come out, you know, with their badges and guns and everything else, and they surround the car. You should have saw his face. Now, I'm used to this, right? <laughs> and they go through the car, and they're going through everything, and pastors like this, and I'm saying, you know, me and my brother-in-law is with me. We're kind of chuckling a little bit. And uh, anyway, six hours later, we were there for six hours and I kept telling him, Pastor, go home. It's okay. I'll get a ride. Don't worry about it. No, he wouldn't go. I think what really got him nervous is that they said, after they approved me, by the way, praise God, I got approved uh, for next weekend, they said, now we got to get you approved to go back to the United States. I said, I never heard that one. So he got nervous because we had a 5 o'clock service. He said, no, I better stay here and make sure you can come back last night. So he, he really got a little bit, just a little tiny thing of what it is to hang out with a mob guy. Anyway, <laughs> former mob guy. But it was great. And, uh, you know, I'm leaving this afternoon, going back home, so uh, I hope I get to visit again. I'm going to be at Andiamo um, in January, and Pastor's going to come, and hopefully some of you will come and see me there. But, um, you know, every time I come up and speak, my prayer is always the same, realizing that I'm just a messenger here this morning, and I really mean that. I'm not here to turn anybody into a Christian. I never impose my faith on anyone. I'm here merely just to share what the Lord has done in my life. And as Christians, we're all obligated to do that. Mark 16, 15, go out and preach, share the good word with all of creation. We're all obligated to do that. And realizing that, I know that God wants to plant a seed in someone's heart here today. I know that. That's why the Holy Spirit has me here, to plant a seed in your heart. And my prayer always before I come in is, Lord, let me be effective Let me be passionate enough in delivering this message so that you can reach out and touch the heart you want to touch in this room this morning. Might be one person, might be 10, might be everybody in the room. I don't know. I don't worry about that. That's God's deal. I just want to be effective because people, I take ministry very seriously. God has blessed me in so many ways. And I feel to those who have been given much, much is expected in return. And I try to do my part in that regard. And I guarantee you, It's happened already in the first service. It happens every service. Somebody's going to come to me. Michael, I didn't even know you were going to be here. But something you said just touched my heart. I needed to hear that. And I want to be effective. I want you to walk out of here a little bit differently than when you walked in. I really mean that. And I know some of you that will happen. I don't know really anybody in this room. But I know some of you come in here with heavy burdens. We all have issues in our life. Some of you are struggling with something. We're going through some tough times in America, whether it be economic or whatever. We all have issues. And some of you are saying to yourself, you know what? How is God going to use me? How is he going to forgive me? I've been a bust out all my life. I haven't treated people right. I've been in trouble. I've been sinful. How is God going to forgive me? Well, people, let me tell you this. If God can forgive me, and I really believe he has, and not only forgive me, but give me my life, Give me my freedom, a wife that I adore, children that I love, a ministry I never asked for. I never asked for this. I ran from this. I never seen the name Michael Francis next to ministry. It didn't sit right with me. But as things started to move on, I started to realize people are impacted by the story. God, maybe this is what you want me to do. And before I get started, take a good look at me, people. 
I'm probably the most blessed, most fortunate person that's ever going to walk up on this stage and talk to you about anything. And the reason I say that is because had I been left up to my own to do what I wanted to do in my life, follow the path that I was on, that I was committed to, I'd either be dead or in prison for the rest of my life. And quite honestly, that's what I deserved. That's what I earned for myself, having spent over 20 years on the street every day, and I mean every day, in violation of both God's laws and the laws of man. And I did it knowingly and willingly. Nobody pushed me into this life. I take full responsibility for what I did. And you know what, people? It's even worse. There were times when I knew what I was doing was wrong. I knew it. And you know what? I did it anyway. I was a knowing and willing sinner. And if you believe anything when you leave here, for those of you who are struggling, if you believe that God has done a work in my life, what are you worried about? I really mean that. You know, when I was struggling with this initially, when I first started speaking, I went to a friend of mine, brother in Christ, and I said, hey, bro, people want me to speak in church. I don't know if I can do that. I said, if, if I was in the audience, I don't know if I would believe me. I said, Why would I, what am I doing? And he looked at me and he says, Francis, stop being a wimp. And I said, hey, now, don't forget who you're talking to, man. What do you mean by that, you know? I got a little insulted. He said, well, you're insulting me right now. I said, insulting you? What does it have to do with you? I'm telling you how I feel. He said, I'll tell you why you're insulting me. My Lord and Savior died a miserable death, was hung up on a cross, was scourged, was spat out, was convicted of something he didn't do. He died a horrible death for the forgiveness of all sins. And you're telling me you're too big, tough mob guy? Didn't work for you? He said, don't ever insult me like that. Whoa. When he said it like that, I kind of thought about it. The forgiveness of all sins. And he said to me, Michael, are you sorry for the sins you committed? I said, yeah, I believe so. I feel it in my heart. I think so. Yeah, I want to do the right thing. He said, well, if you're sorry for your sins, he said, your sins are forgiven. He said, don't ever let the enemy remind you of what our gracious, loving God has already forgotten. Now go do your work. He knew how to talk to me. From that point on, it kind of said, okay, it's not about me. It's about what Jesus did for all of us. So for those of you that are struggling, I can tell you this. Don't ever let your past be a deterrent for what God will use it for in the future. You know, when I go speak to these gangbangers, they listen to me. Why? I tell them, don't tell me you can't leave that gang. I left the biggest gang in the world. There is a way. Through Christ, there is a way. For those of you that might have been struggling, people come to me, Michael, come on, man, I've been a drug addict all my life. You clean up your act now? Yeah. Well, who better than you to minister to people that are going through that problem? You have credibility. Credibility is 90% of everything in life. That's why they listen to you. Go help people now. Don't ever let your past be a deterrent for what God will use it for in the future, because remember this, what the enemy meant for bad, God will turn around and use for his glory. And that's what my life is all about. He took a very dark time in my life and turned it around and used it for his glory. Why? Gave me a platform, unfortunately, fortunately, whatever. People all over the world are fascinated with the mafia, with Cosa Nostra. I've been to Singapore, Malaysia, Australia, Bulgaria, Israel, you name it. Godfathers and I, the number one movie everywhere. When I first started speaking in the Midwest, nobody really knew who I was. I had publicity in New York, maybe out in L.A., but in Midwest, they didn't know me. On the marquee, the mob guy, standing room only. <laughs> That's it. So God gave me that platform. They come in to hear the mob story. They go out learning about Jesus. So remember that. God gives us a platform. We've got to use it for his glory. 
Now, I'm going to tell you a mob story, but please don't focus on that. You want to see mob stuff, go see The Godfather, Goodfellas. I'll tell you this, one of the best mob movies ever is my number one. Somebody is going to say, oh, I didn't know about that. The HBO Gotti movie in 1996 with Armand DeSante and Anthony Quinn. Absolutely brilliant, very realistic. They took a lot of the script out of the surveillance. It was amazing, amazing. That's the number one movie in my view. People say, really, my? Yes, that's it. Anyway. But don't focus on that. You know, I'm all over YouTube. You can find me anywhere. Don't focus on that. What you need to understand is how God used a very dark time in my life, okay, to turn it around and use it for his glory. My dad, Sonny Francis, was the underboss of the Colombo family back in the 1960s, one of the uh, uh, five mafia Cosa Nostra families here in, uh, in New York. And by the way, there is no mafia in America. Mafia exists in Italy. In America, it's called Cosa Nostra, it means this thing of ours. Very similar organizations in some ways, different in others. If you're a made man in Italy, you're not automatically made here in the United States, and vice versa. When people from the mafia would come here, we were respectful to them, courteous, obviously, but we didn't share our secrets. Two separate organizations. Underboss, very powerful position. In that life, you have a boss, an underboss, a capo regime, or captain, and a soldier. I'm sure many of you have seen The Godfather. There is a position called consigliere. Robert Duvall played that role brilliantly, I might add, but in The Godfather, fictional. Because in order to be a sworn, made member of that life and take the oath, and you do take an oath, your father must be Italian. Mom can be of another descent, but your dad must be Italian. And my dad, in terms of law enforcement investigation, media attention, very high profile, always under investigation, always a major target of law enforcement, kind of like the John Gotti of his day. I'm sure many of you have heard of John. And I grew up a lot differently, I'm sure, than everybody in this room. I grew up hating the police. I hated the government. I hated law enforcement. And not because my dad taught me that way. He was smart. It was really because of what I witnessed as a kid growing up. Law enforcement tactics, techniques against organized crime were very different back then than they are today. Everything's very covert. A lot of undercover informants, high-tech surveillance equipment, cameras hidden everywhere. Today, you can be under investigation, not really know about it until it's too late. Back then, when you were under investigation, they wanted you to know about it. And for a period of about 10 years, when I was a kid growing up, Brooklyn, Long Island, my dad was under investigation from seven or eight different agencies. FBI, IRS, Queen Detective, Brooklyn DA, you name it, they were on him. Every one of these agencies had a car parked around my house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They had us cornered on all sides. I was one of seven kids. Whenever we as a family would leave to go anywhere, we had a parade of law enforcement vehicles following us. Everybody knew when we were coming into town. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I witnessed some things that were kind of unpleasant. Every once in a while, they got out of hand. You know, that's a rough detail, sitting around just waiting for something to happen. I had many scuffles with them. I remember once we as a family went into a restaurant, sit down, have a bite to eat. They would file in afterwards, sit at a table behind us, watch us eat, right? This one particular night, one agent got a little bit out of sorts, passes by my table, makes a very nasty remark to my dad, loud enough for all of us to hear it. He didn't like that. You don't disrespect my father, especially in front of his family. Jumped up, went right after the agent. Agent got scared. My dad was a tough guy. Pulls out his gun right in the middle of the re restaurant. I remember people started screaming. My dad looked at him and said, I'll never forget, go ahead. I'll drop you before you get off the first shot. Good stuff when you're eating, right? Me and my brother jump in between them, separate them, pull them apart. You know, normal stuff you do when you're a kid. <clears throat> and, uh, and so I didn't like them very much back then. But I want to make this very clear right now, especially for all the young people here in this room this morning. I do not feel that way anymore. I finally realized in my life, 
they were the good guys, we were the bad guys, at least most of the time. Look, any walk of life, anybody can get out of hand. We're all human. But you know, people, it's amazing how God can not only transform a heart, and I believe you know he can do that, but how he can transform a mind. This whole distorted sense of view I had growing up where good was bad, bad was good. God's been able to fix that. And today, some of my dearest friends are in law enforcement all over this country. And not because I share information or anything like that. I don't do that. We're just friends. Many of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, and I learned through this experience, people, we really are all one in the kingdom of God. And I'll tell you this. I give a very strong message to all of our young people all over this country, actually all over the world. I go into prisons, detention centers. I speak to these gangbangers all the time. I spent a lot of time in prison with a lot of young kids coming into the system. Mandatory minimum drug sentences. In the feds, you get 15 or 20 years, there's no parole. You're doing uh, 85%. You're doing 17 and a half on 20. Very, very hard for a young person to go through that experience, come out and be a productive member of society. And you know, I've got a heart for kids. I got seven kids of my own. And I used to minister to these kids before I was even a Christian, basically counsel them. And you can write the same script for every one of them. Broken home, no father figure in the house. Mom trying to do her best, she's got her own issues, can't really handle the kid. What happens? He gets on the street, he gets involved with the local drug dealer, local gangbanger. They feel like they got a family, like they got protection, they got people around them. Before you know it, they start doing their bidding and they end up in jail or God forbid something worse. And I would tell them straight out, you part of a gang, you part of organized crime, you do not get away with criminal conduct in America anymore. Forget about it. Law enforcement is too sophisticated, too many weapons, too many informants on the street. You go that route, you're going down. And one of the greatest or most important messages you can give our young people, young people, listen up. One of the most important things you're going to hear, it applies to all of us, but especially to our young people. In this world today, we are who we hang out with. You hang with the wrong crowd, you're going to be known to be the wrong type of person, and of course they will influence you. You know, when I came to Christ, people, I didn't get a lobotomy. I don't forget the 20 years I put on the street. You know, I get off a plane in New York, somebody looks at me the wrong way, my antenna goes up and says, hey man, what's up? It's like 20 years of ministry went out the street, I'm the mob guy again. It happens like this. It's right back. But I've been fortunate. I surround myself with the right people. You know, the second thing, accountability. Remember this, and this applies to all of us. Who you are accountable to in life is going to direct your life's path. When I was on the street, I was accountable to my oath, to my boss. As a result, I was a criminal. When I got out of the life and the light bulb went off, I became accountable to my God first, to my wife, to my children, those people that rely on me, to the people that trust me, want to see me do well. You don't want to let them down. So my path straightened out. Who you hang with and who you're accountable to. You get that right, you got a good shot in this life. I mean that. And of course, God comes first. I don't know how people survive without giving their hearts to Jesus and understanding what this life is all about. I don't get it, going through troubles without that. But back then, it was different. And I love my dad. I don't care what people said about him, what I read in the newspaper, good father, good husband to my mother. He didn't want this life for me originally. He wanted me to go to school, be a doctor. Son, you're going to be the first professional in the family. He really wanted that. Stay off the street, get an education. And I was on that path until my dad got in some very serious trouble back in the 60s. Things started changing to, for me. And uh, I want to tell a little story about my dad, kind of honor him a little bit. When I was a kid, I played all three sports in school. I was kind of a jock. 
And uh, my dad would never miss a game, no matter what he was doing. Mob business, legit business, I'd be playing ball, he'd show up. Baseball was really my sport, I'll repeat this, happened so often, I'd be playing ball, and I'd be up to bat, and I'd be looking for dad, and he always, always come late. Then I see him out of the corner of my eye, he pulls up in a big black Cadillac or a black Lincoln. That's the car he drove. For those of you my age, remember those 1960 Cadillacs? Their fin was half the size of this room, I kid you not. You couldn't miss him, right? So he would always come late, he never goes into the parking lot, he pulls right up to the field. <laughs> Gets out of the car, he's always dressed sharp in a suit, never dressed any other way. He'd always have five or six guys with him, right? Never traveled alone, right out of central casting. So they get out of the car, they walk onto the field, they go into the stands, I'm up to bat, I kid you not. The umpire takes one look at that crew, never called strike three on me when he saw that. <laughs> I used to say, hey, Pop, you're very good for my batting average. I played football, nobody would tackle me when he was in the stands. It's good to have a dad and a mom when you play sports, right? He was great. He got in some real trouble in the 60s, indicted three times in the state of New York, twice grand larceny, once for murder. Went to trial on all three of those. He was found not guilty, acquitted in court. But then in 1966, he was indicted in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. After a lengthy trial, he was convicted. 1967, they sentenced Dad to 50, 50 years in prison. Longest sentence for a bank robbery conspiracy case ever given up to that point, I was told. After he lost all his appeals, in 1970, they shipped him off to Leavenworth Penitentiary to do his time. I was a pre-med student, Hofstra University. I was devastated when Dad went in. He was 50 when he went in, figured he had 50 on top of that. He'd never come out of prison alive. Just as an aside, my dad did 40 years on that 50. He was in and out five times, each time on a parole violation, and each time for associating with another felon, somebody alleged to be an organized crime. You can't do that when you're on federal parole. When I was on parole, I had 526 people on my separation list. Feds actually give you a list with people you can't associate with. Some of them on the list I never heard of. Some of them were dead. They don't even let you go to a cemetery and meet with anybody. The feds are tough. <laughs> you want to get messed with them, right? So my dad, on his fifth violation, he was 90 years old. I go see him in prison. I said, Dad, this is getting ridiculous. You're 90 years old. You've got to stop meeting with people. He said to me, son, what do you want me to do? I don't know anybody that's not a felon. He said, even you're a felon. I said, I know that, Dad, but you're allowed to see me. <laughs> Took me two years to get off his list. I was number one on the list. Feds are tough, I'm telling you. You don't want to mess with them. But anyway, um, the sad thing about my dad, he gets out on that violation. Within two years, he's indicted on another federal case. He goes to trial. He gets convicted. They give him another eight years at the age of 93. My dad was released from prison in 2017 at the age of 100. He was the oldest inmate in the federal system, maybe in the country at that point in time. And sadly, my dad passed away two years ago at the age of 103. He was the oldest living made man in America, quite possibly in the world. I don't know if anybody got through that life and lived that long. It was sad, but you wouldn't want the last 50 years of his life, trust me with that. A lot of struggles, a lot of challenges, a lot of, a lot of uh, heartbreak, I can tell you that much. So, when, uh, when um, dad goes into prison, Joe Colombo, the boss of my family, kind of takes me under his wing. I start to meet a lot of my dad's friends. Joey starts the Italian-American Civil Rights League. I thought it was going to, you know, be a tool to help my father get out of prison, because people, I'll tell you this, my dad did a lot of bad things in his life. I'm not sugarcoating anything, no, no doubt about that. So did I. I went to jail for a crime that I was uh, guilty of. I committed, I, I pled guilty, rather, I did my time. 
But that particular crime that my dad did all that time for, he was innocent of. My dad was no bank robber. I will take that to my grave. I investigated that case thoroughly. We spoke to every witness. They recanted their testimony. We gave them lie detector tests, proved that they lied at the trial, claiming my father was the mastermind. We can never get the conviction overturned. Went up to the Supreme Court, couldn't do it. But what does that tell you? It's what I tell young people. The system is not always fair. You put that bullseye on your back, you get that target on your back, you're gonna go down one way or the other. The best way to avoid it, avoid it. Stay away from it. You know, people say to me all the time, Michael, what did you do whenever you got arrested? I've been arrested 18 times. What did you do? I was very simple. Put my hands out, put the handcuffs on, get in the car, and go do the process. You know, this defund the police movement is the most insane thing I've ever heard in my life. And that's from a former criminal. Do you think if Rudy Giuliani would have came to me 25, 30 years ago and said, hey, Mike, don't worry about it. We're going to lessen the racketeering laws. We're going to give you a bail if you get caught. We're going to make it easy for you. Think I would have said, oh, thank you. I'm going to change my life now and become a productive member of society. No, of course. I'm going to take advantage of the system like every other criminal does. That's what they do. Now, people, I don't want to get political, but this is insanity. We need law enforcement. And people have said to me, come on, Mike. You didn't like them back then. They said, excuse me. I have a wife and five daughters. When they walk down the street, I want them to be protected. Who's going to do that? You? No. I support law enforcement all over this country. That's what I'm about. And that's now how it should be. And of course, people get out of hand. I'm not going to get into all of that. Obviously, they have to do the right thing and do it the right way. But we need them. You don't want to reform it. You want to teach them a little better how to be a little bit more sensitive at times. I don't know. That's not my thing. But yes, we need law enforcement. End the story there. So, um, I'm very impacted by that. I go see my dad in Leavenworth. I said, Dad, if I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. I said, we've got to get on the street. I've got to get money. We've got to pay lawyers. We've got to do the investigation. I can't do that going to college. We argued about it. No, I don't want this for you, Mike. I want you to go to school. We argued for a while. My mind was made up. My dad knew I was a pretty headstrong kid. He said, okay. He threw up his hands. I'll never forget. And he said, all right. But if you're going to be on the street, I need you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. He looked at me, he said, go home, somebody's gonna be in touch with you, do whatever you're told. That was it. He didn't break it down for me, he didn't say this is what's required of you. You know, that's a secret life. You're not supposed to talk about that life with anybody outside of it. And if my dad was anything, he was old school, good soldier, he wouldn't do that, he wouldn't violate that policy even with me, his own son. He just knew I had it in me, go home and do what you're told. And you know what, I didn't question him. I didn't say, hey, Dad, wait a second, you know, you change your life here. You want to break it down for me? You want to let me know? No. I had blind faith in what my father wanted me to do because I loved him. Now, how many times as a Christian have you heard, you got to have blind faith? Don't question God. Don't question the Bible. He'd be upset with you. Well, I want to tell you this. This was a defining moment in my life. Think about how many defining moments you've had in your life where it could have changed the course, the trajectory of your life. Something that might have happened. Maybe pleasant, maybe not that great. Well, this was absolutely a defining moment. Why? My dad was proposing me into a criminal lifestyle. But more than that, because of this meeting, when I came to Christ, I didn't come easy. I challenged God. I said, God, wait a second, man. Just like this. I said, I trusted my father more than anything. I followed him blindly into this life. Look where it got me. It got me in a very bad place. I'll get to that. Take it a step further in my life. I took a blood oath. I surrendered my life to Cosa Nostra. People, you come into this life, you've got to give it all up. Body, mind, and soul, or you don't survive. It's all consuming. 
I said, I did this twice in my life, and look where I am. I can't do this a third time. If you really are God, if this Bible is written by men but inspired by you, the blueprint for our life, that's how I look at the Bible. It's God's word in our life. It's a blueprint for our lives. Well, you know what, God? You're asking a lot of me. You put me on this earth. You gave me a free will. You said I can choose one of any hundred faiths, or I don't have to choose any faith at all. And now you're telling me this is the only way to go? No, God. You've got to show me. You've got to prove it to me. You've got to show me the evidence. And people, I know a little bit about evidence. I've been arrested 18 times. I've been to trial five times. I've been indicted seven times. Two federal racketeering cases, one brought on by Rudy Giuliani. I've been to more parole hearings than there are this section of the room, more appellate courts than there are in that section of the room. I know the law. I don't like it. I know it. It was a matter of necessity for me, and I know evidence. Evidence has played a major role in my life. I think in terms of evidence. I always tell people, you're not selling me the Brooklyn Bridge when I'm paying attention. You've got to show me the facts. I want to see it. I've got I to understand this. And I want to tell you this, people. When I finally opened up my heart, my stubborn mind said, God, show me. He didn't get mad at me. I believe he said, okay, my son, if you're ready to go, I'm ready to show you because I am God and I do have the evidence. And do you want to know something, people? There's more evidence to prove that the Bible is God's word and that Jesus is my risen Savior, because I don't know about any of you. I don't put my faith in anybody who's dead and buried in a tomb. I learned long ago, dead people don't help us. There's more evidence to prove that than there is anything else that exists in the world. And if you do nothing today, when you leave here, you need to do the search, do the research. Paul tells us, test everything and hold on to the good. And there's a lot of good in Scripture. It's God's Word. And there's a lot of evidence to support that. I can talk to you all day about that because I am very into apologetics, defending my faith. Not only for others, but for myself also. Just keep reassuring myself. And you know what? I came to a conclusion, and I hope this makes sense to all of you. You know, from the time I was five years old, my dad put it in my head, you got to be a man's man. That's the standard in life you have to live up to. When you walk down the street, you got to hold your head up high, have integrity, treat women and children the right way, do the right thing in life. People got to respect you. you got to be a man's man. If I heard it once, I heard it a thousand times. When I got into the life, same thing. We're men of honor. We're men above men. We're men's men. I heard it a thousand times. So when I came to Christ, realizing that Jesus was a man, remember that, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man. He walked, he talked, he bled, he cried, he laughed. He was a man in every respect. I said, you know what? I want to see what type of guy he is. What kind of man is he? Because I was all this man thing. So I separated his deity from his manhood, and I studied Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospels. And you know what? I was blown away. There was no greater man that ever walked the face of the earth in every respect of his character, his principle, his strength. I want to see somebody else carry that cross. I've been to Israel carrying that cross. Forget it. Strength, everything about him. It was so admirable. So here's the conclusion I came to. If I try to emulate Jesus, the greatest man that ever walked the face of the earth in every way, shape, or form, well, if I'm a husband, I'm going to be a better husband to my wife. Father, I'm going to be a better father to my kids. I'm a boss. I'm going to treat my employees the right way. I'm a worker. I'm going to give my boss an honest day's work. Everybody in the community is going to benefit from me trying to emulate the greatest man that ever walked the face of the earth, and throughout my life, I'm going to benefit. And when I die... 
Well, if he's not the savior of the world, well, I'm dead anyway. What did I have to lose? But throughout my life, all I did was gain. Jesus is a win-win situation because we know that he's the savior, and as a result, we have all of eternity to be in paradise with him. You can't lose with Jesus, people. You can't lose. Break it down into simplest terms. That's what I try to do, right? Okay. So I left there that day. Two weeks later, a captain and a family picks me up, takes me to see the boss. Joe Colombo had been shot, seriously wounded. He eventually died from the wounds. A new boss took over. His name was Tom DeBella. Tom has passed on now. Sat with Tom. Mike, I got a message from your father. He said, you want to become a member of our life? Is that true? I said, yes. Here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family, the Colombo family. That means your mother is sick and she's dying and you're at her bedside, we call you to service. You leave your mother, you come and serve us. From now on, we're number one in your life before anything and everything. When and if we feel you deserve this privilege, this honor to become a member, we'll let you know. People, the mob's not a business. It's a way of life. It's a whole subculture from everything else that exists. We've got our own rules, our own policies. We affect everybody around us, family, friends, people we do business with. It's a way of life. I was 21 years old. I was in kind of like a pledge period, a recruit, where I had to do anything and everything I was told to do to prove myself worthy. Could have been something very menial, a lot of discipline in that life, a lot of authority, a lot of alleged respect. You had a meeting at 8 o'clock, you weren't there at 7.30, you were late. You can never be late in that life. Drive the boss to a meeting, sit in a car two, three, four hours. God forbid you leave, get a newspaper, go to the restroom, he comes out, you're not there, forget about it, okay? Could have had trouble in there. We came out. You weren't in the car. We all get killed. I mean, I heard the whole thing. I did that once. I paid the price. Can't do stuff like that. A lot of stuff like that. And let me be really honest with you, and this is for those of you that are struggling with whatever's going on in your life, and especially with forgiveness. A lot of people struggle with forgiveness, with guilt. Guilt is a tool of the enemy. Tool of the enemy. Trust me. That life at times is very violent. If you're part of the life, you're part of the violence, and there's no escape. If anybody tells you differently, they're either not being honest with you or they weren't a made member of that life. And I think you know what I mean. And I say it again. If you're struggling and you believe God has done a work in my life, what are you worried about? After about two and a half years, I proved myself worthy. It was Halloween night, 1975, when I walked into a room with five other gentlemen. That night, we all took an oath, became sworn, made members of the Colombo family. Took that oath very seriously back then. I take it seriously this morning, even though I don't consider myself a member of the life anymore. You come into the life, you don't sign a contract. There's no retirement age. Can't say, hey, I'm done. You know what they say? They say when you leave that life, you either leave in a coffin or you join the government and enter a witness protection program. Obviously, I've done neither. Very solemn ceremony, dimly lit room, late at night. They wanted you to understand the seriousness of what you were getting involved in. Very imposing. The six of us walked into a room individually, the boss seated at the head of a horseshoe configuration, underboss, consigliere to his left and right. All the captains were alongside of them. We had about 15 in our family at that point. Walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, held out my hand, took a knife right here, cut my fingers, some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint, Catholic altar God, put it on my hands, lit it aflame. Didn't hurt, burnt quickly, it was merely symbolic. He said something to me that night I don't recall ever hearing in my life before. I grew up as a Catholic. Catholic school from kindergarten right through high school, altar boy, the whole bit. But for me, for some reason, Catholicism was like a subject in school. I didn't understand that this entire life is about a relationship with Jesus. And I'm not blaming Catholics, it just didn't work for me. 
And when he said this, it was the first time I recall hearing it. He said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into Cosa Nostra. Violate what you know about this life, betray your brothers, and you will die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. Do you accept? Yes, I do. First time I was born again, I was born into a criminal lifestyle. Every day of my life, I lived in violation of God's laws and the laws of man. The other five guys went in the room. They all took the oath. You come into the life. You come in as a soldier. I was motivated to do two things. One, get dad out of prison. I did get him out on parole after 10 years. Told you what happened after that. Secondly, I wanted to make money. My dad said, in this life, you make money. Translates to power, not unlike the real world. I was fortunate. I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. I went on to make a very significant amount of money. I was a workaholic at that time, worked seven days a week. I was very aggressive. I brought some new things into the family that I hadn't done before, went on to make a very significant amount of money. 1980, the boss of my family, Carmine Persico, who recently died in prison, he was convicted on a mafia commission case by Giuliani, got a 100-year sentence. Uh, he came to me, he says, Mike, you're doing a great job for the family. I'm going to make you a cop regime, captain. That's a very powerful position. And from 1980 until 95, when I consider myself really formally removed from that life, I operate in that capacity. And I want to tell you where I was in, in uh, 1984 when I believe God started to make this transition in my life. 1984, I'm a captain in a family. Quite honestly, they were grooming me maybe to be the boss or the underboss. That's what my father wanted. The boss had a son. He and I were very close. He baptized my son. And uh, they were grooming us to take over the family, boss, underboss, whatever way it worked out. I became a major target of law enforcement, like I said. I was, indicted five t I was indicted seven times. I went to trial five times. I beat every case. I beat Giuliani in 84. I was the first major mob guy he indicted under the RICO statute. I was a lead defendant. I had 15 co-defendants. Day of my arraignment in the courtroom. Amazing. Rudy comes up to me. He gave me a million-dollar bail. He said, Francis, if I convict you on this case, you're going to get double what your father got. I'm going to give you 100 years. That's the kind of time they were giving mob guys in the 80s in New York. Look it up. I'll never forget, I stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Rudy. My lawyer was standing next to me. I said, hey, Rudy, bring it on. I beat you guys four times already. Let's go for round five. And that's about the dumbest thing you could ever do, let me tell you. <laughs> you don't antagonize them anymore. They don't need any more incentive to come after you. But I was young and arrogant back then. But fortunately, after a several-month trial in federal court in Manhattan, I was acquitted in that case. Some of my co-defendants were convicted. They got uh, 30 years. I lose that case. I'm not here today. Give me at least 50, no doubt. So I beat that case. Quite honestly, I had devised a uh, scheme to defraud the government out of tax on every gal gallon of gasoline. I ran that operation for about eight years. I had the Russian mobsters from uh, Brighton Beach with me. And over a period of time, eight years, we were selling a half a billion gallons of gas a month. We were taking down 20, 30, 40 cents a gallon, whatever the market would bear. We were bringing in eight to $10 million a week. And uh, I will tell you this, people. Every time I go to a gas station, I struggle right now. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Especially in California, where the state tax is 71 cents. I keep up on this. And the federal tax is 18 cents, a lot more than it was back in my day. And I'm going to be honest with you, Pastor, please don't get upset. But I'm going to be honest with you. I have no moral issue with defrauding the government out of tax on gasoline. None whatsoever. Because I think I can do better with the money than they can. But anyway, but I'm not going to do it. I won't do it. I'm not going to violate the law. I'm not going to put my family in heartache, and I'm not going to jail again. But morally, no, I don't. Forgive me, Lord, but that's the truth anyway. And I'm not, I'm not trying to lead you in the wrong way. Don't let me blow all this out. So don't do that. Make sure, especially you young ones, don't pay attention to that. But anyway, um, 
And so I got 300 guys under me ready to do anything I tell them to do. I got it going on, right? Beat all of these cases, gonna be the boss of a major family. Top of the world, ma. You know, who's better than me? Not that I believe in God back then, sure I did. People, for me, it makes sense to believe in God. I believe in intelligent design. I don't believe in evolution to the extent that they want us to believe it. I can't believe there's some little speck of dust they can't explain how it came or where it came from in a universe that never existed, all of a sudden exploded in some big bang, and what did it explode into? Everything. That's what evolutionists want you to believe when they break it down. That's at the core. And they say God is a stretch, intelligent design is a stretch. Of course we don't understand how God always was, always will be, always remains the same. There's some things beyond our human capacity to understand. Maybe when we get to heaven, God will explain, maybe not. It's his choice, he's God. But I had no relationship with God. He did his thing, I did my own. And then something happened. Among many things I was doing, I was making movies. I had a production company in LA. Smokey Robinson, dear friend, comes to me. Mike, he's got a screenplay for a breakdance movie. A lot of music, a lot of dance, a lot of rap music. But that's when you can listen to rap music on the radio. Not like today, forget about this stuff today. But back then it was cool. Sugar Hill Gang, Run DMC, Curtis Blow, The Fat Boys, right? Old school rap. I said, Smokey, we'll put them all in a movie. And uh, I said, let's film it in Florida. I've got a house down there. I like the woman. They're great. So we're filming this in South Florida. I bring cast and crew from L.A. to work in the film, 20 professional dancers. I got them staying in a hotel in South Florida, in, in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, we had just finished pre-production, a couple of weeks. We were going into the heavy work, principal photography on a Monday. Sunday, I'd throw a party for everybody in the back of the hotel. Relax, get ready to do the hard work. I'm sitting by the pool, beautiful day in Florida. I'm sitting by there, talking to a few guys, minding my own business. All of a sudden, out of the water comes this gorgeous 20-year-old girl. I saw her, I'll be honest, everything went in slow. It was like a Pepsi commercial, right? Everything went, <laughs> she comes out of the water, her hair is shaking the water. I said, wow, who is this girl? Beautiful, she looked like a dancer to me. She had kind of a dancer's body. So the choreographer was sitting around the pool. I said, Jeff, come over here. He said, is that one of your girls? He said, yes, what's her name? He said, Camille. I said, bring her over, I wanna meet her. She comes over, I introduce myself to her. Camille, Michael, I'm your producer, I wanna get to know you better, let me take you to lunch. Sure, very sweet, polite, gorgeous, right? We set a time and a place. I get this uh, restaurant on top of one of the hotels, friend of mine there, I got everything going but the violins, I figure she'll come up there, sweep her off her feet, she's mine, right? That was my attitude back then. I'm up there half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, she stood me up. Never showed up. Stood up a mob guy, imagine that. She had no idea who I was. I probably would have never seen her again. I see her the next day. I said, hey, we had a date. What happened? You didn't show up. I thought she was going to say, yeah, I'm sorry. I was, she says, I was busy. I said, you were busy? She said, yeah, I was rehearsing. I said, oh, okay. You know, like that. I said, can we try it again? She said, sure. Try it again. Set a time and a place. Stood me up again. Now, she did this to me five times. Now, if she was here, she'd roll her eyes, say, stop exaggerating, it wasn't five times. Hey, guys, we know when we're the offended party. I wasn't used to rejection back then. It was five times, trust me. She won't have anything to do with me. Finally, I capture her one day, we start to talk. I'm working hard now. Ladies, I want to tell you this. You want some knucklehead guy, play hard to get. I tell all my daughters that, play hard to get. Guys always want what they can have. Don't make it easy. And guys, I'll tell you this. My, uh, my, boyfriend, my girl's boyfriends come over to the house, say, here, come here, sit down, let me tell you how you're gonna treat my daughter. And I scare the hell out of them, right off the bat, right? That's it, I mean it. Hey guys, you're not Italian, you got a daughter, speak with a Brooklyn accent, put a vowel at the end of your name, they think you're all mobbed up, it really works, trust me. But anyway, 
Uh, yeah, my daughters, they're afraid to bring somebody by the house unless they're a little bit sure. And I said, don't bring them over. You're not sure because he ain't going to last. Anyway, um, she won't have anything to do with me. So finally, after we're, you know, I'm making nice with her. We're on the set and all of that. She came from Anaheim, California. She used to dance in Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm. She didn't have a clue. She saw The Godfather once. That was it. We wrapped the movie. She's very tight with her mother. She says, you got to come home and meet my mom. I said, hey, I'm great with moms. Let's go. We jump on a plane. We go to Anaheim. I meet her mom. Her mom, Irma, was the most godly woman I ever met in my life. You meet Irma for two minutes, your name goes into her prayer book. She had a prayer book like a telephone book. I'm not kidding. And the entries in the book, the boy on the street corner with one shoe, the delivery boy that came to the house, prayer warrior. She prayed. I believe that woman prayed me to where I am today. I get the chills when I think about it. I mean it. Prayed me to where I am today. I'm sitting with her a week, a half, week and a half after I met her. Me and Cammie and her were sitting having breakfast. She looks at me out of nowhere. She says, where are you with your faith? I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, where are you with your faith? I said, well, I'm a Catholic. You know, I believe in God. And uh, she said, she looked at me, and she knew a little bit about my past, and she said, one day, I believe you're going to be preaching the word of God to millions of people. And I'm sitting there. I said, this woman is on crack or something. She has <laughs> no clue. My wife turns to us with my girlfriend at the time, and she says, Mom, please, don't scare him away. I'm hoping for a service on Sunday, maybe Bible study in the middle of the week. And she looked at her daughter. This is a week and a half after I met her. And she says to her daughter, why would you ever limit the power of Jesus Christ in anyone's life? I never heard anything so bold like that. She says, I'm putting his name in my prayer book. And she turned and she put the name in the prayer book. From that day, she prayed for me, on and on. Now, I'm saying to myself, what am I getting into? If these women have any idea, my life is a direct contradiction to everything they believe. Now, I wasn't buying into it, but I saw they were so devoted, I respected what they believed. Now, of course, I knew God, and yeah, I grew up a Catholic, but not to that extent. But here's what's happening. I'm starting to fall in love with this girl. And all of a sudden, my love for her is becoming more powerful than this lifelong bond, this adoration, this love I had for my dad. Becoming more powerful than this blood oath that I took to Cosa Nostra. How do you explain that? She wasn't the first beautiful woman I met in my life, but there was something about her. And that something, 37 years later, was God. We're married 37 years. God put her in my life. No doubt about it. Now, i got to ask you all this question. Who did God put in your life? Who dragged you into this church this morning? Who's been praying for you, for your salvation? You know, God doesn't take a day off. He doesn't go to the next family, the next church, the next city, the next town. He's always trying to get our attention. Maybe through the people we meet. Maybe through a great joy in our life. Maybe through something that's unpleasant. He's always trying to get our attention because he loves us. The question is, are we paying attention? You paying attention this morning? That's the question. So here's the deal. I said, I want this girl in my life. But what am I going to do? I'm going to bring her into this life. I'm going to end up in prison or maybe dead. We had a lot of wars in our family. Columbus had three wars. A lot of guys got killed. That's the kind of family we had. I said, am I going to do this to this young girl? i got to make a choice. It's either her or the life. It had nothing to do with God. It was selfish. I wanted her in my life. i got to do something. So I had a plan. I always had a plan, right? When I beat the Giuliani case, the major witness against me in that case was going to be the witness against me in this whole gasoline case. It was coming to a head. 
So they indict me on it, right? I told my lawyer, I'm going to take a plea. We got leverage. I beat them so many times. They want a conviction on me. We destroyed the main witness. Let's try to negotiate. We'll make a plea. Because I knew that was a tough case for me. Finally, it was coming up. Long story short, we negotiated a plea. Ten-year prison sentence, $15 million restitution, $5 million in forfeitures. Here was my plan. Okay, I'll do a couple of years in prison. I'll marry Camille. I'll move out to the West Coast. When I get out of jail, I'll have parole and probation. I can use that as an excuse not to meet with the guys. Maybe after 10 or 12 years, they'll forget about me. I'll live happily ever after with Camille out in California. That was my plan. It had nothing to do with God. But you know what? Sometimes God is navigating a course for us. We don't realize it until it hits. So I marry Camille in, in uh, July of 1985. In December of 85, I go to jail. We were married four months. And people, let me tell you this. I'm not the story here. My wife is the story. What that girl went through, she was 21 years old. She didn't have a clue. Eight hard years in prison. I did rough time. Government was putting a lot of pressure on me. I got a contract on my life when it became public that I was walking away. My father went along with it. I had a lot of trouble. That girl, when I walked out of the house on parole, she was afraid I wasn't coming back. The feds put it in her head that I was going to get killed. She went through a lot. And she'll tell you, I love my husband, but if God wasn't in the foundation of our marriage, we wouldn't have made it through. Very, very tough. So I go into prison. While I'm in there, I do five tough years for a lot of reasons. It becomes public. Life magazine wrote this whole story that I was quitting the mafia. Came out. I'm not going to get into the details of that. Immediately, I got trouble. I do the five years. I get out on parole. I'm out on parole for 13 months, the worst time of my life. Big shot mob guy, made all this money on the street. I couldn't get anything going in L.A. I was like a fish out of water. And, of course, people coming after me. We had to move twice. It was a tough time. After 13 months, like a fool, and I mean a fool, I fall into a trap. I violate my parole. I'm walking out of a bank in Brentwood, California. Fifteen agents, state, federal, boom. Slapped the cuffs on me, going to the... Uh, bank. They leaned on my bank accounts, drove my car away, went to my house with a search warrant, cleaned us out, took every penny out of my wife's purse. This is your husband's money. It's not yours. We're indicting him on another racketeering case. We violated his parole. Quote, you will never see your husband a free man again. She had a breakdown on me. She couldn't come and visit me for seven, eight weeks. As they're driving me down to the lockup, the jail, federal jail in L.A., Francis, we're done with you. I was playing a game with them. I was making them think I was going to cooperate, but at the end of the day, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do anything. The gig was up. They knew it. They understood what I was doing. Enough. They said, we're indicting you on a new case. We've got new charges against you. We violated your parole. You will never see the street again. They throw me in that six-by-eight cell in um, um, MDC, L.A., and here's my situation. I said, it's over. I'm done. I said, they took all my money? I said... You can't beat these federal cases with a, a, a public defender. I spent millions defending myself. Racketeering cases are tough. I said, they can't put me out on the yard. I get people looking to hurt me. I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this six-by-eight cell. I said, my wife, 27 years old, five hard years in prison, 13 months on parole. We got two little babies. I'm going to lose the girl I did all of this for. People... I want to tell you this. I have felt every emotion in life you can feel from ecstasy right down to grief, everything in between. I've lived a pretty full life. By far the worst emotion you could ever experience, in my view, hopelessness. When you think it's over, 
Everything that's dear to you is gone. You're in this deep, dark hole. Nothing you can do to pull yourself out. It was the worst feeling in the world. You know, I used to demean people that were suicidal. You're weak. How do you not you know, face up to your troubles? You're weak. I don't do that anymore. Now, I wasn't suicidal that night, but honestly, I confess this to you. I want to lay my head on that cot and not wake up. Is I going to put my wife visiting me in prison? I'm going to lose her anyway. Is I going to spend the rest of my life in this hole like an animal? Take me away. I wanted to die, honestly. I wasn't brave enough to commit suicide, but I didn't want to wake up. It was too painful for me to think of my future. I'm laying there. I'm done. Prison guard walks by my cell. He opens the flap on the door. He looks in. Francis, you don't look good tonight. Are you okay? I said, get away from me, man. I don't want to see any of you guys tonight. Leave me alone. He left. He comes back about a minute or two later. He pushes something through the slot on the door. It falls on the floor. I hear a thump. I'm kind of groggy. I look down. It was a Bible. I didn't want a Bible. I wanted a bottle of Prozac or something. I wanted to forget what I was going through. I'm looking down at that Bible, and I'm getting angry with God. Yeah, I married this Christian girl. My mother-in-law is telling me all of this, and look where I am. Yeah, I'm trying to change my life, and this is what you do to me? I'm angry with God. It took me about a minute. I jumped off of that God. I picked up that Bible, and I slammed it against the cinder block wall as hard as I could. It's like everything came out of me. And then I got a little nervous. I said, wait a second. It's only me and God in this cell. I don't need another enemy. I got nothing but enemies. I picked up the book. I'll never forget. I looked up at that cement ceiling, and I said, God, if you're really up there, you need to give me something to make me feel better. I can't deal with this. I need help. First time in my life. You know, especially me, always in control. Lost it. I'm holding the book. I didn't know where to start. You know, in Catholic school, you read the catechism. You don't read the Bible. The priest reads it from the pulpit. He reads the gospel on a Sunday. <coughs> Excuse me. So I'm holding the book. Falls open to the book of Proverbs. Coincidence? I don't think so. Analytical guy. I like to see something smart. I start reading Proverbs. What a brilliant book. When God said to Solomon in the book of Kings, nobody before you will ever be as wise, and nobody after you will ever be as wise, for something he didn't ask for as a, as a, a gift for what he didn't ask for, with the exception of Jesus, no one was as brilliant as Solomon. And Jesus had a little, he was, he was God, he had a little advantage, right? And I'm reading that book, and I'm getting, okay, it's starting to make sense. And then I come to a verse that stopped me cold. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. Now, I want to tell you something. I don't have any special um, connection with God in that I never heard him speak to me audibly. I don't see him in a dream. Some people have those gifts. I don't have it. Speaks to my heart because I have a relationship with him. And that was the first night the Holy Spirit got to me that I listened because I was desperate. What got to me? The enemy's part. I had nothing but enemies that night. And then I kind of drifted back. If a man, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, and I got convicted. I said, who am I kidding? I'm a criminal. My ways haven't been pleasing to the Lord. And then it was as if a bulb went off, people, I'm telling you. And it was almost as if God made me hear in my heart. But if your ways were pleasing to me, I can take care of your enemies because I'm God. That's how I interpreted that verse that night. I'll never forget. And you people know this. Those of you that are into your Bible, you can read a verse 10 times. It could have 10 different meanings or interpretations, I should say. Why? Because God speaks to you through that verse according to your needs at that moment. That's how he heals us. That's how he comforts us through Scripture, through his word, through the Holy Spirit getting to our hearts when we need him. And it caused me to read on a little bit more 
And I came to the verse that's become the verse of my life, people. And I think it all starts here. And I think it should be the verse of every one of your lives. Now, I don't want to tell you what to do, but I am a former mob guy. I have a tendency to do that, right? <laughs> Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, because people, sometimes we just don't have the answers. I didn't have them that night. In all your ways, acknowledge him, because he's God and he's worthy of that and he deserves that. And catch this verse, because I looked up the translation. He will, not he can, or not he might. He will make your paths straight. When you break it down, people, that's my story. Out of desperation, I turned to God because I had no other way to go. And he's made my path a lot straighter than they were back then. Why are they here? Because every morning when I wash, brush my teeth, wash my face, and comb my hair, I don't want to forget where I came from and when the Lord saved my life that night. Don't want to forget because we need to be nourished every day. And that's my reminder because I need things like that. I need things in front of me. So that's the night I challenge God. Come on, God. Look where I am. Trusted my father. I love this man. I took a blood oath. Look where I am. I can't do this again. Show me. Praise God, the racketeering case they were bringing against me fell apart. They could never indict me. I spent another 35 months and 13 days in prison. They gave me four years, the maximum on the violation. 29 months and seven days in that hole. Six by eight cell, 24-7, me and God and people. I'm telling you, that wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. We were not meant to be solo creatures. We were meant to be social. I'm dead against that for young people that they incarcerate. They couldn't put them in solitary unless there's so much of a danger to themselves. It's not a good punishment. You destroy people. When those lights went out at night, I saw a lot of moaning and groaning, a lot of bad things. A lot of guys couldn't handle it. But what did I do? I dove into my Bible. If you see my prison Bible, there's more of my notes on there than there is Scripture. I know my Bible. I don't quote verses that much, but I know my Bible. I know my Word. I had my wife send me in 400 books. 400 not only on Christianity, but on every faith. I wanted to search for the truth. I wanted to know, to say, hey, if I'm going to die in here, I want to know where I'm going, if it's real or not. Otherwise, I'm not going to waste my time. And you know what, people? Did you ever hear this? Anybody ever tell you it's good to have a healthy fear of things that are no good for you? I thank God for putting me in that hole. You know why? I developed a healthy fear of hell. I said, if this is what hell is like, separated from everybody I love, separated from God, in confinement like this, but a million times worse for all of eternity, I don't want any part of it. And it motivated me really to do the work and do the search. I have a healthy fear of drugs. I had a sister died of an overdose, a, drug, a brother that's been a drug addict for 25 years. I hate anything to do with drugs. I won't take it. Why? I don't want to like it. I'm afraid. I don't mind telling you. Healthy fear of things that are no good for you is the best thing that God can do for you. Right? I had a Sony Walkman. Young people don't know what that is in this <laughs> digital world. Yeah. Every day I would listen to Pastor Greg Laurie. I love Pastor Greg. He's my pastor now. That soothing voice, the way he interpreted Scripture. Anything you can get your hands on that helps you interpret Scripture, soak it up. Audio, visual, pastor, whatever it is you got, soak it up. You can't get enough. And I came out of there believing with all my heart that Jesus was my risen Savior. That was it. And over the last 25 years, he's only made it more evident, not only in my life, but in the lives of others. I've seen him do wonderful things. There are testimonies out there to put my 
pale in front of them. God is really at work, people. you got to give them the opportunity to do it. Now, I want to close this up by telling you this. Want to see God's work in somebody's life? When I walked out of prison in 1995, everybody predicted my death. Everybody. Life magazine. Quote. Oh, by the way, it's all in the front of this book. Guys, you want to read a mob story? This is a mob story. I don't sugarcoat anything. Ladies, it's a love story. A story about me and my wife, how we got together. <laughs> that was never meant to be funny, but everybody laughs. Anyway, but really it's a story about how God can transform a life. But read the inside cover. Everybody predicted my death. Life magazine, quote, if he holds what he has promised, will mark the first time a high-ranking member of the mafia will publicly walk away from his past and live. Ed McDonald, head of the organized crime strike force, my prosecutor, went on national TV when I was released from prison. He said, quote, I don't want to be in Michael Franzese's shoes. I don't think his life expectancy is very substantial. Very diplomatic, predicting my demise. Bernie Welsh, the FBI agent involved in some of the case stuff, he got on uh, after Ed. He wasn't diplomatic. He said straight out, quote, Franzese will get whacked. I think you know what that means in street terms, because that was word all over the street. My mother, God rest her soul, I pray for my son every night. She was so worried, knowing the word on the street, thought I would never make it. I was in 1995. I told you in 1975, I walked into that room with five other gentlemen that night. Today, I'm the only one alive. The other five, none of them died in natural causes. All five were murdered. We had a big war in our family, 91 to 94. 13 men were killed. Uh, 18 men became informants, I'm told, and 63 guys went to jail. And poor Michael was sitting in the hole, learning about God. You know what, people? When we're at our worst, God is at his best. Amen? So, a little more proof. You saw Fortune magazine, 50 biggest and wealthiest, most powerful mob bosses in the country. Huge article, half the magazine. They featured six of us. I was one of the six. And, and uh, they actually had a chart uh, uh, in terms of wealth and power. Um, they had us in, in order. I was number 18 on the list. Youngest guy on the list. Five behind Gotti at the time. John hadn't been made boss yet. And people, don't ask me how they make a list like that. It, they didn't ask for our tax returns. Trust me. It was all nonsense. It was a silly list. It sold a lot of magazine. Didn't mean anything. But you know what is meaningful about that list? Out of that list of 50, some 30-odd years later, 48 of those men are dead. Number 49 is still in prison, older than me. I don't know if he'll ever get out. And number 50 is here for one reason and one reason only, and that's to give praise, honor, and glory to my Lord and Savior and my hero in life, Jesus Christ. Now, what does that tell you? Amen. What that tells you is this. It's very obvious. When God has a plan and a purpose for you, and he does for every one of us, nothing is going to get in the way. No mob, no mafia, no cosa nostra, no gang, no sickness, no addiction, not even death. Nothing will get in the way of God fulfilling his purpose in our lives except for one thing. You know what that is? It's every one of us. Because remember this, people, our loving, merciful, and gracious God is never an intruder in our life. He gave us a free will. He's always what? An invited guest. So I'm going to tell you, that what are you waiting for, people? For those of you who haven't made that commitment, we're not guaranteed another second in this life. We know that. I'm 71 years old. I've experienced it. I know. We're not guaranteed another minute. It's time to jump on board. Now, I'm going to tell you this. pastor is going to come up here, and he has a wonderful way of expressing this. 
But I am telling you this, he's going to steal a line from a very popular movie. He's going to make you an offer that none of you should refuse. God bless you. <laughs>